I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. And you're listening to Deep Cut. Something snapped in my ass. <laughs> <laughs> hey, something snapped in my ass. <laughs> On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss a director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. So here we are at the third episode in our discussions on the Coen brothers. We talked about the popular pick, No Country for Old Ben. Uh, excuse me, <laughs> old men. Sweet, sweet joke. I'm a young person. We talked about Wilson's Deep Cut pick, Inside Lewin Davis. And today, it is my... Absolute honor to present my favorite Coen Brothers movie, 2008's dark satire, Burn After Reading. Guys, I love this movie. I've seen it five times now, and I pretty much know it beat by beat. Okay, do it. Do the movie. (laughs) Do the whole movie. Zooming in. (laughs) First line. First line. First line is... um... Oh. Oh. (laughs) That's a real Uh, test. It's like a boring first line. It's not like Ozzy, like... Last line. (laughs) Last line is Jesus fucking Christ, and then he closes the book. <laughs> yes! Yeah. It's true. I just finished it five minutes ago. It's true. <laughs> the last line of the movie. Fact check. Since this is my deep cut pick, I also wanted to talk about my personal connection with the Coen brothers. Their partnership is one of the first times that I was really aware of a director, like what a director does. And sort of like the first directors who I tracked and saw their movies in the theaters as they were coming out at the point when I was aware of directors in general. So they mean a lot to me. They mean a lot to my adolescence and also their sensibility as American Jewish filmmakers means a lot to me. I could have chosen any number of deep cut picks. You know, A Serious Man has a particularly, obviously, Jewish slant and perspective. But I think Burn After Reading is also kind of Jewish in a way because of the way it looks at the Gentiles. Mm. It has so much to say about the absolute alienness of white mainstream blandness. Mm-hmm. The kind of bullshit of it all. But it's also not really about anything. <laughs> One of the thoughts that I had re-watching it this time is that it feels like it's putting on a crisp white suit and then rolling around in a puddle of mud. Because <laughs> everything is so well done and it's all so inane. It's a good metaphor. Yeah. And you have these insanely great actors all doing the dumbest things playing like the stupidest characters and it's such a blast just to see them embody people who usually don't get any representation in <laughs> these big films like dumb people it's pretty great wait what himbos himbos himbo cinema this is one of the main points that i wanted to bring to this episode the coens have such a sharp grasp on casting and what actors strengths are and how to play against type and this to me is the pinnacle of that skill, truly. They are really so in the zone with who to cast, who they wrote for, and it's all about the actor's skills and how sharply they can play, as the Coens called it, knuckleheads. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about how you guys found the movie. How'd you like it? You go, Wilson. You just watched it. 
Yeah, I am so fresh off of a watch, but I think it is insanely good. For me, comedy movies are really hit or miss, and rarely does a comedy film make me laugh out loud. And Burn After Reading had me doing that every scene. There is at least one line read or one gag that made me chuckle. And that really brought a joy to my day. I was honestly having a really stressful day. And <laughs> this is exactly what I needed. Also, it's so great just seeing all these actors, especially like big action stars like Brad Pitt. And <laughs> I wouldn't say like George Clooney's a big action star, but he's like a big like movie star just doing dumb stuff. Like Brad Pitt doing that dumbass dance that he does. The, oh yeah. Just <laughs> dance in the car. Yeah, in the car. Or what he does at first in front of oh, Linda. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got it's his number. So, <laughs> yeah, I got his number. It's so hilarious. And it's just such a joy to watch this. But also, stylistically, with the cinematography so on point, with so many, like, very intentional camera movement shots that mimic the genre that the Coens are trying to play on, as well as the score, which really, like, propelled the plot forward and have you, like, infested in this dumbass plot. Um, I was thinking and doing a lot of, like, comparisons between this film and Tinker Tailor because oh. <laughs> it is a spy thriller, and it's so <laughs> funny how far they are, but also how similar they are in the plot intricacies and all these different characters coming together and bumping in, into to each other within the, the plot. So yeah, but it was it was an absolute joy to watch. Wilson, I'm hearing you pick up on kind of my favorite aspect of the movie, which is for any technical field you could pick, acting, directing, cinematography, editing, dialogue writing, mm -hmm. it's sort of as good as possible and as dumb as possible simultaneously. Yes. yes. It's so sharp. Ben, how about you? Oh no, I'm gonna be that guy. Yeah, be that guy. <laughs> okay, be that guy. I'm be that guy. I think it's a funny movie, but I think it left me cold in the sense that I didn't really respond that well to its brand of comedy. And I think that's the issue of comedy. Like different kinds of comedy work with different kinds of people. Right. And for me, I respect its dumbness and the intricate level of dumbness in the plot. <laughs> I feel like my issue with it is that it kind of like the opening shots in the title sequence, takes too much of a bird's eye view of mm. what's going on. It's putting you in the shoes of J.K. Simmons, the CIA director or whatever, more than the characters who are dumb. And I prefer to be next to the characters who are dumb. And I think knowing so many things about like what's going on, like I feel so outside of the dumbness that... It feels too flat for me, you know? Like, I want to experience this crazy thing as next to the character rather than as from the outside watching the character. Mm. So, for example, like, I felt like with George Clooney's character, there was a disconnect between what was being shown to me and how I should be feeling. And so, the big thing about him is that he gets increasingly paranoid throughout the movie, right? Yeah. And you have these surveillance-type shots, zooms, yeah. long lenses, very un-Cohen-esque and Unchivo-esque filmmaking. <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of gives you an idea that, oh, it, it's just supposed to be feeling some sort of paranoia. You're supposed to, like, know that he's being watched. But we already know what's happening. We know what he might be misunderstanding. We know what's happening on the outside. We don't really understand where he's coming from, from his perspective. We know where he's coming from, but we don't feel where he's coming from. And so mm. that kind of disconnect for me didn't work. For me, the big problem is a problem of perspective. There's too much range of narration. Like, I know... Where where everyone is in the thing that it feels more like a funny thing to 
tell me rather than a funny thing to watch. Does that make sense? Interesting. That sort of does make sense. But for me, the audience knowing more than the characters do lend to more humor than the other way around. I feel like you can know about the same level, but I I feel like it's it's more like, where are we sitting here? It's hard to explain. Like, I feel like we needed to align with one person to really go through like a manic, crazy journey. But then because we're like, looking over a war table, seeing all the pieces move around. Yeah. I felt such disconnect. But pick one. Ben, pick one. Pick one. Pick your favorite, huh? Can you do that? Pick my favorite? Can you do that? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> that's so aggressive. <laughs> I can't pick a favorite and that's kind of the problem, which is that I feel like they're trying to divide everything up in a certain way, like in a very even way. They're like, who's the character here? There's no... It's just like an ensemble piece. It's going all over the place. I might be making it out to be more of a problem than it is, but it definitely, I think, is the reason why I didn't connect so well with the comedy and the story here like even though they're dumb i feel like i need to invest in the dumb characters still i can't just be on the outside being laughing at them which is very much what you're supposed to do you're supposed to laugh at how stupid they are yeah (laughs) but i love dumb characters (laughs) then i think what you're saying is right i think about the experience of watching a stage farce right the way that the genre of farce works is that you are hierarchically above what the characters know Mm. you have more information than the characters do at any given point And you're watching characters come in and out of doors and have misunderstandings. And the chaos of it all, them not knowing what you know, is part of the appeal and humor of that genre. Mm. You're also right that it inherently places us above the characters and makes us look down at them and laugh at them. And that sounds mean. It is sort of mean for the characters, (laughs) but I think that, again, because the acting is so sharp, the antidote to the way that we look down at the characters is that we're looking up at the actors. Like they're, knowing that they're having so much fun and really at the top of their game, even as they're, again, like wallowing in the mud, to me, that is the sort of combined experience that makes Burn After Reading feel safe and comfortable Mm. while also yeah being a little bit mean-spirited to the characters you won't get an argument from me about how good the acting is here like they're definitely all at the top of their game playing extremely dumb characters (laughs) yeah it's very well done Ben, one of the interesting things about perspective that you're noting is that though we're outside of the characters' experiences a lot of the time, there is a fair amount of POV shots. Mm. One of the interesting moments to look at for perspective is that scene when Brad Pitt, Chad, sneaks into Osborne Cox's house and is then shot by George Clooney, Harry Farr. It's a lot of Chad's POV, so his face and then what he's looking at, especially once Harry Farr arrives at Osborne Cox's house and Chad has to flee upstairs and hide in the closet. And then in the closet, it's just Chad's face, what he sees. Chad's face, what he sees, direct optical POV. Mm. The moment that Chad emerges from the closet and gets shot, it switches to Harry Farr's perspective. Mm. And it's his POV a lot of the time. Mm. Even though we might not feel for the character's goals, like we certainly don't think Linda's surgeries are worth putting her friend's lives in danger, we get what they're feeling scene by scene. And I think that's an important distinction. And that's kind of the fun of it. You get to try on a character's emotions and then remove them for the next scene. Right. Hmm. And have fun scene by scene. Hmm. Yeah. So I mentioned that this was like my fifth time viewing and I wanted to say a little thing about my viewing experience. Oh yeah. I had a really fun time watching it with 
four of my close friends, you know, finally in person. We had all seen it before, but we all wanted to watch it again. I mentioned I had to watch it for the podcast. They all wanted to watch too, because one of the joys is going back and revisiting and having all this quotable dialogue and all these idiosyncratic performance choices, like the way that John Malkovich says, this is an assault. <laughs> this is a crucifixion. <laughs> the memoir. like The memoir. There's, there's so much quotable stuff. And I have actually a number of friends with whom I can drop burn after reading quotes in the voices of those characters. And it's an instant bonding point between us. Mm. Nerd alert. Sorry. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But it has a special place in my friendships as well as, you know, it is my favorite comedy, period. I also wanted to say that after we finished the movie on this viewing the other night, my friend and friend of the show, Max, took us around the corner from where we were watching at his place. And he showed me the house that the Coens used no. for Osborne Cox's house. Oh, shit. So I watched it like a block away from that house. That's insane. <laughs> they shot it in New York? Amazing. Yes. Crazy. This is actually bridges into some context, which we should get into. Good segue, Wilson. <laughs> they shot primarily in New York. They shot some exteriors in Washington. And they shot some interiors on the Steiner Studio stages in Brooklyn. So they wrote it around the same time that they were adapting No Country for Old Men. I think one of my favorite things about this movie is that they come off of No Country for Old Men and win like baskets of Oscars. Yeah. And then they do this. <laughs> like it's just such a great left turn. <laughs> Well, I guess it's a it's a good way to balance out while you're writing this really heavy script. Right. You're like, oh, why don't I just like throw some dumb ideas out this way for burn after <laughs> reading? From the start, this was about casting and actors and their characters. Mm-hmm. So they said in an interview with Uncut, quote, We wrote it as an exercise in thinking about what kind of part these actors might play. All of their parts were written for Brad Pitt, George Clooney, Francis McDormand, John Malkovich, and Richard Jenkins, except Tilda Swinton's. We just wanted to do something with these specific people. It was an exercise in thinking about what kind of characters they might play and what kind of story they might inhabit, end quote. They said it was more fun to make than No Country for Old Men Mm, for a number of reasons. They weren't at the mercy of the weather. They were also asked, did the Oscar change things for you? And they said, no. (laughs) Just some fun little tidbits of information are that Brad Pitt's hair was a mistake from a commercial shoot. And when he met with costume designer Mary Zofres, she (laughs) saw the bad streaks in his hair and she Mm. knew that they had to keep it. Yeah, Chad. (laughs) Another similarity between both this movie and No Country for Old Men are people are getting fucking shot. Like, they're getting shot. A lot of people are just getting shot in this movie. It's crazy. (laughs) I was so shocked. Okay. Spoiler for halfway through the movie, Chad sneaks into Osborne's house and then gets caught by Harry, which is George Clooney's character, who shoots him point blank in the face when he makes this dumb face. And it was <laughs> hilarious because I was you you always see the screenshot of Brad Pitt's face before he gets shot. So I was like oh, about to laugh because I thought it was a meme moment. And then <laughs> like half a second after, he <laughs> had like a bullet through the head. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> It's so fun to watch this movie with people who've never seen it before and just watch their reaction at that moment because it's the most shocking left turn. It really is. (laughs) The movie definitely picks up after that point Mm. when, for me at least, I think when when Chad gets shot. Not not to go swing the other way, but I I feel like that might be the reason why I... I kind of wish the farce 
kind of got kicking quicker mm. because they do spend quite a lot of time to get all the pieces in place. Mm. And like after seeing so many Coen brothers in the last few weeks, I feel like this is because of their rightly impulse to kind of put all the pieces in place. But I feel like this could have just been wackier from the beginning. And I felt like the parties, meaning, for example, the people at Hard Bodies and the people at the CIA and, and Osborne Cox in that community should have been thrown together much sooner, especially with such a short movie, mm. so that we could tumble much longer with the fallout of that clash. And I think I see the, the ballsiness of how abrupt things wrap up near the end. Yeah, oh my god, I love that choice. And I respect mm. it. I, I respect it a lot, but I... It felt a little bit like something was stolen. Like there was more here that we could have dug into. Like more stupidity. Like more zaniness from the point that he gets shot. Mm. But then they kind of just wrap it up as like, yeah, this is a huge clusterfuck. And that's kind of the shame for me, I think. <laughs> because they set up such a great convoluted story. And then they just snap it away. <laughs> yeah, I think it's <laughs> I think it's bold. I, I, I don't know. I just really <laughs> admire that choice. When you Google Burn After Reading, one of the top Google questions is what was the point of Burn After Reading? <laughs> we can sort of speculate a little bit. Joel Cohen in an interview says, quote, the story is about middle-aged people, all of whom are undergoing professional, personal, and sexual crises touching on national security. <laughs> Side note, whatever that means. That's what makes it a Washington tale. The oh. plot concerns Central Intelligence Agency and the world of physical fitness, and what happens when those two worlds intersect and collide. Internet dating is also in the mix, end quote. <laughs> As Clooney says, quote, this picture is really about shockingly dumb people doing dumb things involving sex and other situations, end quote. Yeah. Very good description. The pleasure for me is not so much extracting meaning or really even admiring the overall structure of the thing. It's scene by scene that there's such sharp dialogue, there's such sharp performances, and there's just side-splitting stuff constantly yeah wait tell me what is your favorite scene Eli? sorry <laughs> i just want to talk about yeah. <laughs> moments of this movie because <laughs> i think my favorite scene might be brad pitt and john malkovich when they meet in the car to brad pitt thinks exchange ransom money and john malkovich <laughs> thinks to have a confrontation yeah so these are two actors with whom the coens had not worked previously but both of their parts were written for them and again it's just a sharp understanding of what these actors can do how to bring out something that they haven't done before as Pitt says quote basically I see the role as a career buster end quote mm. and in this scene you really get to see the strengths of the Coens and these actors and Emmanuel Lebeski's nickname Chivo his skill at choosing the wide lenses that really accentuate and exacerbate the facial oddities of each of these actors mm -hmm. in this tight space of the car and the dialogue is just so sharp so many of the quotable lines that I love from that movie are in that scene appearances can be deceptive <laughs> yes, and deceptive. the best of all which is John Malkovich Osborne Cox is starting to break Brad Pitt who plays Chad and he says there will be such a shit storm that your head will be spinning faster than the wheels of your Schwinn bicycle my friend <laughs> and Brad Pitt as John Malkovich is finishing talking starts yeah. to smile and laugh like not paying attention and says yeah. you think that's a Schwinn <laughs> That's a short. <laughs> it's dialogue that's so strange and specific and funny, and each of the characters' voices are so distinct mm -hmm. in performance and in writing. It's like all these lines that only could be said by these people in this moment. And I love that specificity. 
Yeah, me too. I like was typing notes while I was watching and the note that I typed during this scene, I wrote two notes. The first note was, Malkovich is so great at shout acting. Yes. <laughs> Which he is. You moron. <laughs> yeah. And the way that he builds it up throughout the scene in the car is really like a master class in, in showing how to make yourself bigger, at least vocally. Um, in a scene. Totally. And then I just wrote, this script is crazy. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> it really is. It's like, why CIA? Why Jim? Why are they sending <laughs> yeah. up spy movies, but also not really sending up spy movies? Wait, I have a question about a joke. Okay. Why yeah. are the CIA people confused whenever they bring up the Russians? They're like, why the Russians? Well, okay, that's the other thing about this movie that I find interesting. Even though it's in 2008 and America has already really stepped back onto the sort of like causing global crisis stage. Yeah. You know, our flop era. Yes. <laughs> which is just all of our history. It's been a it's been a full flop era, let's be real. It's been a flop era since we landed at Plymouth Rock. But <laughs> you mentioned Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, right? Yes. John Le Carre's books position themselves in a time after the supposed glory of the World War II era when the cause was noble and it's the dirtiness and indignity of the Cold War, right? Mm -hmm. John Malkovich's character is positioned in relation to the Cold War in the way that George Smiley is positioned in the way to World War II, where the Cold mm. War was his era. But mm -hmm. there's sort of nothing going on and less to do mm. and everything is bureaucratic bullshit. There's not even the memory of nobility or anything, right? Right. Of course, there should never be a memory of nobility for America's foreign policy, but mm -hmm. that's the idea that John Malkovich's character has when he's talking to his father on the boat. But this movie kind of becomes prescient in a way because of not just the bumbling ignorance of the top echelons of the CIA, but in the casual and wanton cruelty. You know, they burn Chad's body off screen and dispose yeah. of it not wanting to solve the crime. They let Harry Farrer get away to Venezuela. They give <laughs> Linda Litsky the money without further ado. And there is an underestimation of the Russians and just sort of like a blaséness about all that. And it's a very strange point in history when this is made. Yeah. And it sort of captures the intermediary state of global and national politics. It feels very mundane and absurd. And again, that's one of the Cohen's strengths, mm. combining those two. I mean, that's like the CIA agents, they're pretty flagrant with all the things that they do. Yeah. And like, there's an insanity to that because they're supposed to be the bureaucratic thing on top but they are doing as crazy things that they can kind of give themselves liberty to do. Very casually. Yeah, and that's the stuff that I actually like the most. Right. Thinking about that, like, <laughs> oh yeah, this is kind of stupid and like they can just burn the body, no one gives a fuck. It's very dark comedy, <laughs> very dark humor. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, like, I like thinking about it. <laughs> I don't know whether I like, like watching it. Mm. <laughs> Hard to really say, I'm not really sure. I feel like I could read this on like a, a Today I Fucked Up thread. <laughs> you know what I mean like oh today I, I fucked up the entire intelligence community like that, that's the kind of feeling I get from this yeah T-I-F-U <laughs> I dropped my CD at the gym that I go to <laughs> and caused a, a, a nationwide catastrophe yeah <laughs> like, it has that kind of like what kind of feeling last week we talked about the cinematography of the Coen Brothers movies and how they rarely use 
uh, over the shoulder shots we made it a note to like look out for over the shoulder shots this time and, and i was i was watching and looking for them i didn't really see any like blatant ones but there is one scene where harry is lying in bed with katie who's played by tilda swinton and they're sort of both facing up Wait. and and it's two shots across their faces and it's sort of like an over-the-face shot. Hmm. It's not a classic over-the-shoulder shot. You see both characters on screen, but I guess it's more economical in showing both their faces and not having to obscure someone's face. Hmm. Yeah, well, they're also, of course, non-committally playing with the genre of spy movies. Yes. You know, there are these tension-building scenes where you don't know what Harry Farrer is building in his basement. <laughs> <laughs> And there are the telephoto shots where he's being followed by the private investigator, though you don't know that at the time. The undercutting of mystique mm -hmm. of that genre mm -hmm. that the cones are doing is so fun. Yeah. As we're talking about the chief technical authors of the movie, Emmanuel Lubezki, cinematography, it's time for our whoop, 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 yes. whoop, whoop, corner. Skip Levesay, my favorite sound editor in the world. <laughs> I'll write a Skip Levesay theme song, and it'll just be changing ambiances. <laughs> we... <laughs> oh, the scene where one of the CIA people walks through the CIA, and it's just like sounds of his footsteps in different rooms. Yes! I was like, Skip, I see you. I hear you, and I feel you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't have any interviews from him from this movie because, you know, I guess people weren't too interested in the sound on this movie, unfortunately. But that is one of the things I wanted to mention. Same technique that we spotted in No Country for Old Men. Mm -hmm. He's doing that here. Yeah. As he's walking through the CIA halls, the ambience changes with each shot. Mm. I also wanted to note just how great a sound joke the chair squeaking is. The dildo chair. <laughs> <laughs> the reveal is hilarious. It's so good. It's so funny visually and it's so funny sonically. The way it squeaks. Yep. That mostly is it. Oh, is that it's it? It's a small skip left. Well, okay, I can cite one more thing. <laughs> okay. Just as we're also thinking earlier about positioning of the audience in relation to the characters, mm -hmm. I think about that scene when Brad Pitt is dancing in his car as he's listening to music. And you can kind of faintly hear what he's listening to in his headphones. Mm. But we are hearing what the camera would logically hear in that moment. Right, right. That is definitely a moment of looking at the character and laughing at him as to what Ben is saying. That's it for the Skip Love Say Corner. We love you, Skip. Yeah. <laughs> love you, Skip. What if we got Skip? Wait, we talked about this last time. Do we? <laughs> I remember. <laughs> and we were like, yeah, it's a good idea. Let's try and get Skip. <laughs> if we write him a theme song. Oh. <laughs> He'll have to come. <laughs> if you build it, he will come. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to explain what I <laughs> I know exactly what Wilson is thinking. Because <laughs> he did build it. <laughs> but nobody came. <laughs> I do wonder about like what they were thinking when they built that gag because you see him bringing the poles in, doing God knows what, and you have no idea what it has to do with anything. Yeah, but you're primed to think that it's something very sinister. Yeah. Because the paranoia builds after he kills Chad, but it is there from the start of the movie. 
Clooney's character is always looking around and he always seems like he has a more sinister motive than what he actually <laughs> wants to do. So you <laughs> have small scenes of him like picking up pipes from the store, like building stuff in his backyard, hiding it from his wife and <laughs> it makes the, the reveal when it's built up over a series of scenes, the reveal makes it all the more glorious when it is just a sex machine. It's both an undercutting of the tension and just a great joke. So it doesn't feel like a letdown, even though the point is that it is a letdown and it's taking the wind out of the tension building. Mm -hmm. So fun. It is great. I'm a little sad that Tilda doesn't have too much, much to, do. to do in yeah. the movie because she yeah. is so incredible in that tiny scene when she's a pediatrician. Oh. <laughs> and the tiny scene in her doctor's office when she's seeing the kid and then threatening him. <laughs> and we're like, your mom's going to leave this room and we can settle this one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> that little moment was probably one of my favorite moments in the whole movie. And I just wish they found a way to write her in more to the whole shebang. Yeah. But yeah, Tilda was great. She quietly has a couple other really great moments, like when Harry's cutting the carrots <laughs> and he has like a mountain of carrots because he's so distracted. And she says, do you think that's enough? Carrots, Harry, for the salad. And then he says to her, you really are a negative person. And she says, I'm not one of your shithole buddies. Just the way she says that is so good. I just feel like there will not be a great American comedy for a great many years unless the Coen brothers make another comedy. I mean, they did Hill Caesar, which oh, I didn't really like. I think that there are like really good moments, but my hot take is that I think the would that it were to would that it were so simple scene is a highlight, but it's cut better in the trailer than in the movie itself. I can't remember. I have only seen the trailer, and I really enjoyed that. Beat it, would it be to were so simple? I feel like my issues with. Hail Caesar, in my hazy memory, have similar is similar in tone with what I have with Burn After Reading, which is like, hmm. the individual scenes might be good, mm -hmm. but as a comedy, it doesn't necessarily coalesce for me in a way that like, yeah. like it's like a comic masterstroke. You know what I mean? Yeah. And not that you need that in the comedy, because sometimes you go to a comedy to have fun, and it's not like Burn After Reading is a fun to watch for me, but it doesn't have that through line, you know, that thread that makes it like, cinch up the whole film as a gag in itself mm -hmm. and I think Hill Caesar had much more of a looseness to it that made it feel even more like less put together than Burn After Reading mm. I agree but interestingly Big Lebowski is also all over the place and I liked it <laughs> more so than both of these films and I, I can't really say why mm. is the Big Lebowski as sprawling in terms of plot and characters that you are with. Yeah, it's almost as meaningless and it also is as abrupt in some ways. Mm -hmm. It's pretty stupid. Like the dude, Jeff Bridges' character, is embroiled in a situation that is based on complete coincidence. They use a lot of coincidences and there's actually a lot of contrived plot points to make the plot move. Mm. But there is a very loosey-goosey nature to the whole thing. There's something very non-committal to it in a way that is for some reason that for some reason works for me, which I can't really explain. Not not really my favorite comedy that I can think of, although I don't really know if I'm thinking about comedies that way usually. But 
it definitely works for me better than Burn After Reading and definitely better than Hill Caesar. Mm. Yeah. One of the distinctions that you can draw between some of their comedies is whether we get to see the characters have a range of different emotions in different scenes mm. or if we see them in only kind of one emotional context. Mm-hmm. I think in Burn After Reading, in Big Lebowski, you get to see these characters have different emotions at different times mm. and that makes them feel a little bit more lived in. To my memory, in Hail Caesar, there are a few characters like Baird Whitlock, George Clooney's character, and Josh Brolin's character who you get to see have different emotions, but most of the characters have kind of one note. Mm. Hobie's just kind of, well, a himbo again. Mm -hmm. Scarlett Johansson is kind of just grumpy. Jonah Hill is just shy. And I think there's something missing when characters only have one register Mm. in the Coen movies. You're making me realize what's the big difference between Burn and Lebowski, which is that in Big Lebowski, your access to the story is the dude, right? Right. He is the main driver. And that clocks with what I was saying about wishing that Burn After Reading had more of a singular perspective. Because Mm. the dude goes into this story that makes no sense to him. And you are along with him in the ride of like not understanding what's going on. Mm. Big Lebowski Mm. has a very laid back, not quite noir vibe, but sort of. Mm. Uh, It's a very weird conclusion concoction that somehow works and I think it's because it adheres to this single character trying to make sense of some stuff that doesn't make sense and you're discovering the connections and you're discovering who is doing what and the lies that people are saying and when somebody is misunderstanding what a different character is doing Mm -hmm. you're coming to the realization with another character whereas here in Burn After Reading they telegraph what's about to happen you see this train wreck coming a mile away (laughs) right I'm not saying that that's a bad thing you know it's just a different way of accessing a story Right. And so that moment when Chad gets shot, like definitely is a surprising yes, but you know that this story is going somewhere with these groups of people slowly moving into each other's orbit until a collision will happen at some point, right? Yeah. There is a heightening of the promise of the train wreck that happens when Chad gets shot. Mm. The kind of graphicness Mm. of it is shocking Mm. and it's Mm. like, whoa, we're in this kind of movie now. Yeah. And it manages to retain its flavor of humor, but... It's a lot amped up in that moment. (laughs) I agree. It is both a train wreck that you see coming, but it manages to be surprising by upping the stakes a lot. Right. There's a shock value to it. And I think that's a really fun choice. I mean, like, especially with the ending with what Osborne does to uh, Richard Jenkins' character, Ted insane and then they completely undermine the shock value of it which is great yeah by ending the fucking movie which is yeah insane (laughs) (laughs) like that's the second to last scene yeah yeah they don't like spend any time with an epilogue or like showing you what's happening with everyone else like yeah we're done we're out movie's done it's great so efficient (laughs) i wanted to ask you guys while we're mentioning ted about the little hint of his backstory as a greek orthodox priest Oh, (laughs) I am always a little bit puzzled by that moment in a way that I enjoy where it's like, why did he stop becoming a priest? What's the implication here? It goes to hard bodies. (laughs) (laughs) He manages hard bodies. I don't, I don't, I I don't know what to think of it. I feel like there were a lot of jokes that went over my head, but the jokes that caught for me were still a lot (laughs) and I still enjoyed them. There's this feeling that this film was partially made by the Coens going to a giant salad bowl that they have written little post-its of random funny (laughs) things they've thought of over the years Mm. and then just fishing out stuff whenever they needed to like fill in a scene and then just kind of finding a way to make it work. Mm. There is that element of like 
what? <laughs> like, how did this get in here? I don't know, it feels too specific to the characters for me. I agree with you that I think the specific characters are well-formed in themselves. Mm-hmm. They make a lot of sense. Like, I think Clooney's character is particularly well-managed in terms of, like, he tries to portray himself as this kind of, like, cool guy and, like, has this badge of honor of not shooting his gun. And then <laughs> you kind of see why when he does shoot his gun. <laughs> and that's a really good Chekhov's gun kind of thing going on, right? Mm. But I, th- I think the thing that is, like, puzzling about the construction, puzzling as in how did they come up with it, is, like, why gyms and CIA? <laughs> like, like that, that's, that's like the big question mark for me. It's like, how do you, from a screenwriting perspective, put these two elements together? <laughs> and then when they get asked that question in interviews, they're sort of like, we wanted to see what happened when we combined CIA and physical fitness. And it's like, what? Like, that's so <laughs> circular. Who has like, had that thought in your life? No, nobody, except the Coens, you know what I mean? And I think that is their charm in how they construct their movies. It's such a balancing act. And that, again, is part of the fun to me. It's this puzzling combination and there's an inherent tension in that. Mm. The game kind of becomes, can they balance these two things in a coherent world? Mm. And they're such masters of tone and and consistent worlds and having characters feel like they're of a piece that it works. Any other lines or scenes that we wanted to shout out? I really loved when Linda goes to the... um, Russian embassy and she she <laughs> hands them the CD which, which first of all she says there's more of which, which we <laughs> which definitely know there's not <laughs> and then they keep on ratcheting up tension with the promise of what the information is and then the line that the <laughs> the, the the Russian agent like says that kills me is like he just like looks at it as for a second and he's like PC or Mac. <laughs> like, so oh my god, my favorite moment in the Russian embassy is when they go to see the higher up cultural attache and he says to them, You're not ideological. They're both kind of <laughs> silent for a moment, and Chad says, I don't think so. <laughs> so it's just such a funny, like again, like it's not just that they're making the worlds cohere, but they are making them clash in a way that coheres. Yes. Okay, my favorite moment, and maybe this is the reason why the film is flat for me, is because my favorite moment is in the first scene. At the very, very end, when Osborne leaves the room and the door closes, and Olsen, who you never see again, just has this funny-ass look on his face because of Osborne's huge meltdown as he leaves. And I don't know, that is my favorite moment, which is like the biggest throwaway thing. That really tickled me. That's a top moment for me, which is a very weird moment to pick, I think. But just watch that scene again. It's the smallest, like, he's just sitting there. Osborne exits full two seconds and then he just kind of like looks at the ground and just his eyes widen just a little bit. He's like, mm. <laughs> And I don't know, that that was my favorite moment. I, I don't <laughs> Yeah. Maybe that explains my brand of humor, but maybe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, thinking back to what you said earlier, Ben, sorry to bring this up again, but I wouldn't see it as the CIA officers aligned with us, like, overseeing all the dumb people. Like, I would lump the CIA officers with the dumb people. Mm. Yes. I would say that the world in which the film lives in, like, everyone's dumb in this world. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that was, like, the difference that, I don't know, my brain chose when I mm. entered into watching this movie. And <laughs> I, I don't think I disagree with you. I, I think they're still dumb. <laughs> I think it's because the film positions us as being smarter than them, and I don't like to feel that way. I, guess, uh, yeah. I think the film is an accurate depiction of the world we live in, maybe. <laughs> 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 it's 
pretty stupid when you think about it. Stupid things happen all the time. Maybe I find it difficult to laugh at them because unless you're like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> hmm. No, I, I, I don't actually really believe that, but I, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I get what you're saying, Ben. You're a kinder soul than Wilson and I. I don't know if that's the reason. <laughs> I really don't think that's the reason. <laughs> Anyone got wrap-up statements to say? Something snapped in my ass. Wait, what? <laughs> it's it's such a fun watch. Everyone's at the top of their game. It's such a character and actor and dialogue strong movie. And that makes it such a delight. And it means a lot to me personally. I really love this movie. I want to say thank you, Eli, for bringing this to <laughs> the podcast. Um, because it has been sitting on my watch list for a really long time. If, if I scroll through my letterbox watch list, it is like on the first or second pages. So that means I, I put it in in like, I don't know, 2015 when I started my letterbox <laughs> account. And I probably was not going to get to it for a few more years. But here I am today having enjoyed this really wonderful movie. And thank you, Eli, for, for bringing that to my life. Yeah, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. And Ben, even if you didn't love it, I'm glad that you found interesting things about it. Yeah, I'll still recommend it. I'll still recommend it to anyone. I think it's a pretty unique comedy. Like, I think it's hard to find something like a frame of reference, like a different comedy that is doing something similar mm. to what it's doing. Mm. I mean, like the only reference is another Cohen's film, probably like talking about a big Lebowski. <laughs> they do have a very singular vision of how they construct their worlds. Agreed. You know... I don't really have too much else to talk about because it kind of is what it is in a really beautiful way. Yes. Mm. It's just a good time. Yeah. It is a yeah. sweet, sweet time. Let's wrap it up. Rappy, rappy. Burn this podcast after listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to or follow us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. You can give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at DeepCutPod. That's where we'll be announcing our final Deep Cut pick for next week's episode, our final on the Coen Brothers, for now. <laughs> Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm a good Samaritan. <laughs> I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Ben, can I get a, a clean line, or not line reading, but can you just say something like, are you thinking of the dildo chair? Wait, what? For, for it to put into the joke. Do it a few times, Ben. <laughs> are you thinking of the dildo chair? Are you thinking of the dildo chair? We're talking about the dildo chair, right? Wait, are we talking about the dildo chair? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a few takes. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> that one's gonna edit together real nice. <laughs> it's just gonna be those lines all together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not cutting one take out. Yeah. <laughs> keeping them all in. <laughs> <laughs>